EcoHealth, your internet radio. Good afternoon and welcome here on Radio EcoHealth. It's the Road Trip Show, Wednesday the 26th, I think. 26th. Yes, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> awesome, awesome. I'm also, me... I'm also struggling to discover what month and week and year I'm in at the moment. <laughs> I haven't quite caught up to 2022 yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so me and Diederik was discussing that the UK is completely dropped all their regulations except for the self-isolation. No more masks, no more uh, COVID IDs that you've been vaccinated and all that uh, nonsense. So yeah, let's hope uh, South Africa follows suit very soon. And yeah, Diederik, over to you. Good afternoon. How's it, Devout? Always good to be back again. Yeah, now some interesting stuff. Like you said, Britain has dropped... A lot of the COVID regulations and masks and stuff, and I think the travel the travel stuff is changing there big time as well. And just an interesting article across my desk this morning on, on, on a website called Business Insider. Now, oh, yes. traditionally, um, our biggest tourism markets have, have always been Germany, England, France, and the Netherlands. Yes. And for the first time... Last year, the USA overtook those markets. Oh, wonderful. So there's a huge shift in the tourism market. Thank goodness I've got my operator, operators in the U.S. that send me clients. And this obviously gave me a hell of a boost this morning because I'm looking at this and I immediately emailed them and said, hey, guys, how about doubling your bookings for next year or for this year because <laughs> yeah. you guys are taking over. Yeah. And a lot of it obviously had to do with the travel bans and, you know, England putting us on a red list and, you know, those, those kind of panic reactions. Yes. The public looks at it and goes, ah, hang on, government says it's not cool, so let's not do that. So, <laughs> but it's just, just nice to see. But, I mean, you know, and interesting that the USA, the USA traditionally been a very jumpy market. Um, I remember once I had a booking from, from the US of a family or something coming out, and I think a, a bomb went off somewhere, I think it was in Kenya, Oh, Someone yeah. bombed a church or something <clears throat> in Kenya. The family cancelled their trip to South Africa because it was Africa's now a dangerous place. Yeah. So the USA has always been a jumpy market, and people are very skittish, but very nice to see the U.S. coming out. I mean, the U.S. dollar is a fantastic currency. Bring yeah. it. Bring it all. Bring it, guys. Bring it, guys. Bring we've got, it. <laughs> we've got ATMs that swallow your cards and use the money, and we've got a hundred ways to take those U.S. dollars off you, off you yeah. <laughs> and bring them into our economy, and we need it. Oh, yeah, my goodness, seriously, we need, it. we need it. No, we need it badly. <laughs> and also an interesting one, if I look at our podcasts um, on, on Buzzsprout, on that uh, RSS feed site, Buzzsprout. Yeah. South Africa is still our highest percentage. 39% of our downloads are South Africa. But the next one is 19% is the USA. Nice. And that also amazes me because the USA, again, traditionally is not one of our our interest points or sources for tourism. I mean, look, there's always been tourists, yeah. but it's always been yes. pretty low down the scale. Yeah. And the USA is our second one. Then comes Germany, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, and then the Netherlands. Yes. So our traditional markets are lower down the level than they were last year. And it's just, just it's interesting to interesting, see that kind of stuff. Yeah. And just for interest sake, we've hit 47 different countries already with our, with our podcast. So hopefully okay. we're doing our bit to promote a bit of tourism. And hopefully yeah. guys are downloading our app properly and having a good look at South Africa and what there is to offer. Yes. Anyway, we, we finished off last week in Durban. I think we just managed to make Durban. We made, we made Dick King's grave um, yeah, just out Dick in, 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 in um, I think it was in, in Isipingo. 
Now, we've covered Durban before in one of the previous podcasts. So if you scroll down our list of podcasts, you can get a nice, nice little briefing on Durban. So, and officially the N2 sort of skirts around the main, main business center of Durban. Yeah. It, it, it hits the intersection with the, um, with, with the, the main highway up to, up to Johannesburg, the N3. And then it skirts around Durban, goes through Umgeni, and then you start heading out sort of towards the coast, out to the northern side. But Durban's one of those cities with a huge influence from outside. Obviously, the biggest influence being the Indian population. In the 1800s, Indian people were brought out to South Africa as indentured laborers to work on the sugarcane plantations. Yes. And local labor at that time, the Zulu kingdom was still intact north of the Tugela River. And obviously, the Zulus had no interest in coming to work for, yeah. for the sugarcane farmers. So there's a massive shortage of labor, so eventually some guy cooks up this plan to bring Indian laborers into South Africa. And it was a little, was a little basically a little better than slavery. Uh, yeah. Guys could get a ticket, and yet they had to pay it back and off, off almost no wages and stuff. But that was the, yeah. the start of a massive Indian influence in Durban. And an interesting stat is that Durban has got the biggest Indian population in a city anywhere in the world outside of India. Okay. So huge, huge Indian yeah. Indian influence. And when you're driving on the highways, you always see temples and stuff. And, of course, the Indian market in Durban is an absolute yeah. win. And the curry places. What do I say? You've got, you oh, got, yes. you got to go get a good <laughs> Durban Indian curry. Yes. And, I mean, especially the Indian market. When you go in there, you can see the piles of, of curry powders for sale. And I love loved the one. The, the one they, there's, they, somehow the Indians seem to have something with a mother-in-law. Because one of the stronger ones is called mother-in-law's tongue, which is obviously a reference to how sharp it is. Yeah. And the other one was, I think, I think I saw one once called mother-in-law exterminator. So <laughs> <laughs> that sounds interesting. <laughs> but just I mean, you walk in there, and those smells and the colours and stuff in that Indian market are just awesome. Yeah. But anyway, as you're heading out of Durban on the N2, and hopefully today we can finish off the N2 and get all the way up to Ermelo. And that will be the end. Five parts. I mean, we've done more pod- podcasts on the N2 than we did on the Kruger Park. So I'm going to do something yeah. about that. Kruger Park can't come second to the N2. <laughs> I'll have to conjure up another podcast to do in the Kruger. It's one of those, one of those special places. Yeah. But just as you come out of Durban, you, you pass um, Marshu and then obviously the big ex-township of Phoenix. Oh, yes. Now, Phoenix, the mythical bird that dies and then resurrects out of its own ashes yes. is where the name comes from. And that actually came from a sugarcane farm that burnt down. A farmer guy by the name of Thomas Watkins um, had a farm there. It was burnt to the ground. He replanted, and, that's, and he called his farm Phoenix, and that's where that yeah. name comes from. And also just an interesting thing of Phoenix. It was originally on a mission station founded by a, an American Presbyterian minister. What he was doing in South Africa, who knows, 1858, <laughs> a guy by the name of Daniel Lindley had found his way to South Africa as a missionary, and he set up his mission station in what is now Phoenix. Okay. And again, just an interesting aside, he was the first properly ordained minister of a recognized religion that ministered to the Fortrekkers. Oh, okay. All the other guys previously weren't actually ordained ministers. They were just chappies who managed to read the Bible and yes. were sort of mystics rather than ordained ministers. I'm not sure how much difference that makes, but uh, just a, a, piece, a piece of info. Yeah. But as you go past there, and again, one of the things that is so in, what I love in Durban when you see the, 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 the temples, the Indian temples to the various religions in Durban, 
Yeah. And the colors, the colors are just absolutely amazing. And there's a beautiful one just in New- Newlands Least in Inanda. Inanda's just right next to Phoenix is the Narain Sami Temple, which has actually been declared a provincial heritage site. And that goes back to 1896. Okay. I mean, that's, 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 that, that's a very venerable um, temple. I mean, so it's a Tamil, Tamil Hindu congregation there. Yes. But it's just, it's, it's whitewashed, which is a little bit different. A lot of the temples aren't white. It's white. And it's got beautiful statues. It's got statues of peacocks. And it's got the whole um, sort of Hindu pantheon of gods okay. in little alcoves on it. And it is just such a beautiful example. And just the colors, the huge, vibrant colors that stick out on those temples yeah. just, make, make it, make, just make it worth, um, worth, worth visiting. That's just that great stuff. And, of course, there in um, Phoenix as well is a house that belonged once to Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi spent a lot of time in South Africa. Oh. And... And I must, I must just check the pronunciation. Even went on to my Oxford Dictionary to get the pronunciation of Satyagraha is the word that you use for his type of resistance. And it was basically a, a form of um, passive resistance. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it comes from the Sanskrit, from Satya, which means truth, and Agraha, which means obstinacy. So okay. sort of a passive resistance to first in, in, in India, British rule, and eventually that got taken through to the anti-apartheid and the anti-race laws at yes. the time here in South Africa. And um, unfortunately, that original house was burnt down in some riots in 1985, but it subsequently got, got rebuilt, and it's got a very interesting display on Mahatma Gandhi's life in, okay. in South Africa. Then the highway just carries on and you start hitting a couple more of the little beach towns and, and holiday towns. And I've always, I must admit, I've, I've always found the Durban coastline kind of, kind of scrappy. It, it, it never looks like they've planned it out properly. Lots of little houses, little roads, and you know, then you've got yeah. this beautiful beach, and then you've got a railway line, and then you've got some bushes, and then a house. And you sort of go, well, it should have been the other way around. You know, put the railway line away from the coast yeah. and let the people enjoy the ocean. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, poor planning. Yeah, just just lousy planning. Yeah, it always just seems a little bit little, a little bit scrappy to me. But then you head out, you know, and you get you go past the King Shaka uh, Airport. Actually, before you get there, you actually get to get to Umschlanga. You get to the Umschlanga Rocks, one yeah. of the more upmarket areas. And Umschlanga, it's, it's named after the Umschlanga River. Umschlanga being the Zulu the Zulu word for river of reeds. Okay. Which is all the yeah. reeds and, and the riverbanks and stuff. Yeah. The good spot to visit in Umschlanga Rocks is the what they call the Natal Sharks Board. And the Sharks Board is an interesting, interesting little spot to spend time there because they, they're responsible for the maintenance of the shark nets. Yes. I think we spoke about the shark nets earlier. Yeah. Where it's sort of a it's a it's a tourism boost sort of safety net thing on the beaches. Yeah. A bit of discussion as to the effectiveness of them, seeing as most of the sharks are caught going out to sea and not coming in again. Yeah. But, uh, but we, we have very few shark attacks in South Africa. I think you've got yeah. more chance of dying from giant hailstone than by shark in South Africa. So yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. not something that you seriously need to worry about in, in, the, in those waters. Yeah. But the shark sport's got a very, very informative display in it. Every, I think twice a day they actually host a dissection of a shark. Ones that they found in the nets, because if you spend some time in Durban or in Schlanger Rocks, 
early, early morning, as the sun rises, you see the little boats, the little um, inflatables going out, and they're servicing the nets. Yeah. They're checking out the nets. They're making sure they're not torn. They take them up. They pick them up, and they free whatever they can. And if something's dead, they'll obviously pick it up and bring it back for research purposes. Yeah. And you can actually go and watch the dissection of a, of a shark carcass. Okay. At the at the sharks board, so it's a, it's again it's an interesting little spot to put on your radar to go and have a have a visit there, and uh, massive shopping centre there as well. And they've, they've they've stopped it now, but when they built that shopping centre, actually up in Amschlange Ridge, oh, yeah. they actually had an indoor surfing pool. Indoor surfing. And there was an pool. indoor surfing pool. They had a wave how pool generator thing place? inside the shopping center where you could learn how to surf. That stopped now. Now it's just a big open. I think it's a little games area or something. But I always remember that and going sort of trying to sort of going that that's kind of absurd to me. Which that you uh, go shop- inside, shopping center is that? The one up in Nushlanga Ridge. Oh, okay. <laughs> on, okay the top, on the top of the hill. <laughs> I I'm not sure exactly what the name of it is. It might, it might, it might just be. I think it's Gateway. I think it could be Gateway. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I, I speak yeah, under correction there. Gateway, yeah. But yeah, they had an indoor surfing surfing school. But yeah, so but as you as you go as you go up up the highway, you now start getting into the old into the real Zulu, the world of the Zulus. First one, Sharkers Rock. Everyone knows Sharkers oh, yeah. Rock, but I don't think many people know where the name comes from. Obviously named after King Sharker, but legend has it that that was one of Sharker's little spots that he executed people. And there's oh. a very high cliff face onto the sea, and he used to march people off that into the ocean. Because yeah. uh, in, the, in Sharker's times, there, that was a court of law, and basically you were either innocent or you were put to death, one of the two. Yeah. There was no such thing as prison or, yeah. or, or stuff like that. And then, of course, the old name, you get Sharker, Sharker's Kral, again, yeah. reference to sh- where Sharker used to live. These are old names that have, that have exactly where Sharker's Kral was there, I don't think we're actually too sure of. But Sharker's Crawl, obviously, in reference to where King Sharker had one of his royal homesteads. Yeah. Then, then we start coming up to an area called Kwa Dukuza. And an interesting character that comes out of, out of that area is um, Albert Latuli, Chief Albert Latuli. Oh, yeah. Now, there's a, mu- there's a little museum in Kwa Dukuza. Now, Kwa Dukuza is on the outskirts of the, of the town that used to be called Stanger. Stanger, I think, has just undergone a name change as well. Oh, yes, yeah. But Latuli is famous. He was the first South African ever to win a Nobel Prize. He was um, <coughs> awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1960. Oh, yeah. But Latuli, 1898 to 1967, he was elected as president of the African National Congress in the early 1950s. He was born in Zimbabwe, strange enough. Oh, okay. Um, and educated at Adams College by, and believe it or not, that Adams College was actually run by the first president of the ANC, a guy by the name of John Duby. Okay. His father was a missionary, Seventh-day Adventist church missionary. And he was, treated, he was trained up as a teacher. He worked at a couple of colleges. He became a lay preacher as well. He also was part of um, Zulu nobility. So he was oh, okay. a tribal chief. In, in one of the districts in, in, in Zululand, and he became a member of the ANC in 19, 1944. So the little house there in Kwadukuza is the house that he lived in in the 19, 1927. And it obviously focuses on his trials and tribulations with the National Party, 
who banned him. Now, we've met one or two other characters in yeah. our history that have been banned before. You know, when you were banned by the National Party, you were basically put into home exile in your little yeah. house and you weren't allowed to talk to more than three people and you had, weren't allowed to move more than 10 kilometers from your house or something. It was a whole gaggle of little real rules and regulations. Yeah. So Latuli also has one of the d- distinctions of being one of those people who were banned <clears throat> by the National Party. So that's actually a cool little spot that you can, that you can go and visit. A little way off the end too. Then of course you got the next town, um, which is Stanger, and there is naturally a statue to Chief Latuli in town there. I'm just trying to see if there's any any bits that I that I, that I missed in his CV. Oh yeah, one one or two interesting interesting characters that he actually met is that um, he actually travelled to the USA in 1948. He was allowed to travel to the to the US. And he went on a bit of an anti-South African road road tour around the U.S. explaining the okay. racial policies and the things that were coming out in South Africa. Yeah. Um, he was visited by um, Senator Robert Kennedy when Robert Kennedy visited South Africa in 1966. Okay. So that, that, that's a little bit of an interesting history there. And he um, was actually killed by a train. He was crossing a, a trestle bridge on the Umvoti River and a train ran him over oh. in 1967. Lovely. So, uh, <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> so yeah, Chief Latuli in that in that whole area, and now we also actually get into the real part of King Shaka's kingdom, because reportedly, and again, this is a little bit of a discussion. It's probably ninety nine percent correct, but Shaka's grave is actually here in Kwadukuza or in Stanga. Okay. And Shaka, we, we've covered a lot of Shaka's history, how he rebuilt the, the whole, or actually founded and forged the Zulu nation out of all these little separate tribes. And he was killed by his half-brothers, Dingan and, and Mflangana, in 1828. Yeah. And that was in response to the death of his mother. He was very close to his mother because his mother never married Shaka. Yeah. Um, his father was Senza Gakona. Senza Gakona never wanted to marry Nandi, so they were ostracized, and he apparently had a very, very difficult childhood. He was sort of had a bit of a nomadic existence, going from group to group and tribe to tribe, because obviously a little bit of a political issue, yeah, you know, the yeah. illegitimate son of the king. Oh, <laughs> yeah. hang on, you know, a little bit hard, hard that one. And uh, he was eventually taken in by, by Dingiswayu from the Intetwa clan, and Shaka eventually took over from Dingiswayo, and he was then able to consolidate his power and became this, this, this huge figure in South African history. And Nandi's death somehow derailed this guy. Yeah. And he went on to a massive mourning period, but he involved the entire Zulu nation, and cattle were killed, and people were killed if they weren't mourning enough, and no one was allowed to milk the cows, they weren't allowed to plant crops, yeah. and basically out of self-preservation... Um, his half brothers killed him so that they could stop this 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 mourning madness yeah. and and get get everybody um, back a little bit back back to normal. So that statue is apparently very very close to where he was killed, and he was killed outside his hut in his in his royal village. Yeah. So that's an interesting little spot spot to visit. You've also got a a little museum called the Dukuza Museum. And again, it's, that focuses on Shaka and, and that period in history. 
But it also focuses a little bit on the sugarcane industry because now in that Zululand area is kilometers and kilometers and kilometers and kilometers of sugarcane. Okay. Yes. And the only other, the only other sugarcane museum I know of is up in northern Eswatini, or, or Eswatini now, the new name for Swaziland. There's oh, another yeah. sugarcane museum up in Swaziland. And, I mean, it's, it's tens of thousands. I think the, the last number I got from a few years ago, something like 300,000 hectares of Zululand is planted with sugarcane. Sugar Damn. That's, that's huge. <laughs> it's a, it's an huge. industry that is a massive employer. It's a huge um, exporter of, of sugar. The Durban Harbour has got a special sugar terminus just for the export to sugar and molasses and stuff. Wow. Okay. You know, the, yeah. The one once the sugar cane is harvested, I think you can get three harvests of sugar cane a year. It's all done by hand. They've yet to invent a machine that can do it for whatever reason. Yeah. So you often see masses of labor in the sugar cane fields hacking it out. They burn the fields first. They've got to be a fast fire, what they call a fast fire or a cool fire. So the fire runs through very quickly because the leaves of the sugar cane are very sharp and they can cut you and slice you to bits and pieces. Yeah. And it chases all the snakes out. So, you know, masses of labor are employed. And the sugarcane on that highway, there's always sugarcane tractors with trailers loaded with sugarcane taking it yeah. to the mills. So, I mean, it's a massive part of the economy drives around the sugarcane. But your, your next major spot as you come out of Durban is you actually hit the Tugela River. Now, the Tugela River is one of these watershed spots in South African history because that was traditionally the borderline between the Zulu Kingdom and the British colony of Natalia or Port Natal. Okay. And the Zulu Kingdom, independent. Britain had taken over Durban and Natal from first the foot trekkers and all the rest of it. So they, they kicked the foot trekkers out. That's old Dick King running away down to <laughs> the, down, <laughs> yeah. down, down, down to um, Grahamstown. Luckily, Dick King's now in our yeah. rearview mirror. We don't meet Dick King again up here in Zululand. <laughs> but that, yeah. that period... So England has consolidated the power around, around Durban. It's a very useful little harbour to have. They're busy trying to work against the slave trade and trying to work against the Portuguese in Mozambique. Yeah. And it's one of the only safe harbours that were around. But now on the northern border, you've got this fearsome Zulu kingdom. Um, and, of course, the Zulus didn't want to work on the sugarcane plantations. And that, of course, didn't quite yeah. work with the English. Yeah. They needed labour and they wanted labour. And they try, wanted to force these Zulus into some kind of compliance. Yeah. And the British eventually concoct one or two little mini reasons to declare war or to deliver an ultimatum to King Tetsuayu. Uh, Tetsuayu is again one of these larger than life figures in our history. And Britain used one or two little border transgressions. Two warriors, I think, came over the Buffalo River at some stage and took back a young lady who'd run away from a forced marriage. And they blew this thing up into this huge political issue, this okay. danger of the Zulus now invading at will. And, you know, typical newspaper yeah. press kind of stuff, <laughs> blow it up into something that it's not. And they get this, this, this massive fervor going that we've now got to control the Zulus. Now, as you go onto the bridge on the Tugela River and you're heading north, take a look down on the right-hand side. There's a tiny scrappy little tree protected by a little fence. You've got to look carefully or you're going to miss it. Well, and that yeah. thing's called the ultimatum tree. Okay. And that's the way the, in December of 1878, the British colonial government handed King Tatswayu the final ultimatum. 
And it was an impossible ultimatum. He had to disband his army. He had to disband traditional marriage. He had to allow yeah. missionaries into his land. He had, and there was just no way. Yeah. That's why he could do this. It just, it just could not, could not happen. And he had to swear allegiance to Queen Victoria. You're talking Victorian England here, yeah. guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's why he turns around and he, he actually said they don't, they don't want, the, they, they want my kingdom. And the Anglo-Zulu War breaks out in 1879. So as you cross that Tugela River, you've got the ultimatum tree. And if you go do a quick search on Google, picture ultimatum tree, Zulu War, 1879, ultimatum tree. There's photos of the British standing there in their top hats and tails and stuff. And the mass of senior Zulu indunas and leaders in their traditional dress. And it yeah. is such an impressive <coughs> sight to see these guys, you know, with their, their headdresses and feathers yeah. and shields and... And they're just standing there and they're looking at this British and going, what do you guys want? You know, yeah. you, 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 it, it, it's not possible. Yeah. So 1879, here we go, January um, 1879, the, the Anglo-Zulu War breaks out. As you go over the bridge on the, on the little hill on the side, there's a little spot called Fort Pearson. And that was a little fort built. Because exactly where that fort is and where the highway goes over the river was one of the crossing places that the British armies used to actually invade Zululand. Ah, okay. And Fort Pearson is where what they call the British number one of the coastal column actually crossed over and went into Zululand. Now, in, a, in, an, in, an, in an episode at some stage, we're going to have to cover central Zululand and what we call the battlefields. And we've got to cover like Rorksdrift and Isantwana and those, again, iconic, epic turning points in our history. Yeah. And that Anglo-Zulu war, we've actually just passed the anniversary of the Battle of Isantwana. Because Fort Pearson was the central, was the, the coastal column. Very close to sort of where Ladysmith is nowadays, the, the central column went through. Oh, yes. And they got wiped out by the Zulu army at the Battle of Isantwana. Oh. The aftermath of Isantwana was the Battle of Rourke's Drift, one of the iconic defenses worldwide. It's studied all over the world as one of the defensive actions fought by the British. Tiny little outnumbered garrison, outfought and outlasted a massive Zulu attack the day before a Zulu army inflicted the biggest colonial defeat ever inflicted on the English ever anywhere on the planet. Yeah. So those two stand in sort of juxtaposition to each other so close. <laughs> and I actually saw that two members of the Welsh regiment that defended Rorke's Drift were actually at Rorke's Drift last weekend at the commemoration. Oh, wow. Okay. That's how deep that runs in the British history and traditions. Yes. That two serving members of the, of the Welsh Regiment came out to be at the commemoration of yeah. the Battle of Rorke's Drift. So wow. that, that, that sort of all focuses on that ultimatum tree and those events of 1879 all started there as you cross that, the, the, the together. Yeah. <clears throat> but the Zulu history has got a long, complicated history like any royal house, any... any um, Mass, massive sort of population group. Yeah. Is then just a little way off the N2. It's a, it's a, it's a little, little bit of a travel to get there. But um, 
your first one there is a place called the Ndonda Kusuka Battlefield. Who's a good now? <laughs> Ndonda Kusuka. Ndonda Kusuka okay. Battlefield. And the main player at the ultimatum tree didn't have an easy ride to take over as king of the, the Zulus. And 1856, there was one of the biggest battles, one of the bloodiest days in Zulu history, believe it or not, was fought there in 1856. Okay. Between Te and his brother Mbuyazi, rivals to the Zulu throne, and thousands, literally thousands and thousands of Zulu warriors were, were, were slaughtered on that battlefield. Sure. But if you look at that, 23 years now before the Anglo-Zulu War. Yeah. So it's an interesting spot to visit if you really want to look at the tactics and stuff. The next one, as you're going up, now you hit a place called Ginginklovu. 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 That one is easier <laughs> than the previous one. <laughs> and there's there's one or two funny funny little stories. But yet yet Ginginklovu was one of the more, I think, um, tragic. Battles, because Ginginklovu, the name Ginginklovu, actually means swallower of the elephant. Oh yeah. And that's a reference to Tetsuayu's victory over his brother, where he swallowed the elephant and took over and consolidated his power. Yeah. But Ginginklovu is actually one of the Anglo Anglo Zulu War battlefields of 1879, and we now we're now talking in April. Rock's Drift and Isantwana happened in, in, in um, January. And we're now already in April. Chelmsford is now bringing a relief column uh, to Ishawi. The British had been besieged in Ishawi for a while as well. And Gingenclaw was almost one of the last real major battles of the war. And the Zulus got wiped out at Gingenclaw. Yeah. And that almost broke the back. Of, of the Zulu army. And the day afterwards, it, the, 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 the column made it up to Ushawi, relieved Ushawi, and that was almost like the beginning of the end yeah. of, of that Anglo-Zulu war. But there's a, there's a very poignant monument up there. There's some British graves up there that you can go and have a look at as well. And, uh, yeah, it's always a little bit sombering to think that these, these, this, this Zulu nation, you know, two months before managed to wipe out this modern army by the day, yeah. With their spears and bravery, then get literally mown down with machine guns and stuff. Yeah. It's just, yeah, not, 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 not right. Yeah. <laughs> not right. <laughs> now, as we go a little bit further up the highway, we get one of these real larger of life, larger than life characters who's buried in a little spot close to Mtunzini. And that's a character by the name of John Dunn. John Dunn. Now, I think John Dunn has got the longest CV on the Road Trip SA app <laughs> of every listing that we've got. Okay. It's, it's just point after point after point after point after point after point after point. A real absolute larger than life character. And John Robert Dunn. And the, 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 the best words we could find to describe him was a British settler, hunter, trader, and diplomat. 
Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's born yeah. born 1834, and eventually he died 1895. So, if you look at 1834 to 1895. 1834 to 1838 was the Great Trek. 1838 was the Battle of Blood River. You're looking at the British occupation. You're looking at Fort Trekkers. You're looking at the Anglo-Zulu War. Yeah. You know, you're looking at 1881, First Anglo-Boer War. You know, he, he, he lived through all, all of those base. experiences. Sure. And he was born in Port Alfred. His father was a hunter and ivory trader. And... Through his mother's family, he was actually a grandson of a guy by the name of Alexander Bigar, one of the pioneering traders at Port Natal. We know we've spoken about Bigar being one of the initial guys who set up the city of what ended yeah. up Durban. Okay. He was orphaned at 14, and he was almost adopted by the Zulus. He, he spent most of his, his later childhood dressed, dressed in Zulu, Zulu gear, absolutely totally fluent in Zulu. Okay. And... Through his lifestyle there, he obviously got to know the Zulus and the cultures and the traditions and all that. Yeah. That made him exceptional, an exceptionally valuable and skilled interpreter for the British for the British Empire. Yeah, and he, yeah, he he sort of tr- ran around as a bit of a trader, sort of like a like a travelling salesman kind of character for a while. Okay, and then. During the 1856 war, now we've just touched on that war, he, he supported Mpande against another guy by the name of Tetsuayu. And he chose the wrong side. Oh. So after that battle of Ndonda Kusuka, he, um, he gapped it. <laughs> he was on the wrong side. And... You know, now, now he's living between these two worlds. He's sort of half Zulu, half English, but he's on the wrong side. So the Zulus don't like him. The English don't like him because he's, he's this, this half Zulu kind of character. Yeah. So he, he was sort of a bit of in, the, in, this, in, the, in this no man's land. Yeah. But eventually he, he, he makes friends with Tetsuayo uh, again. He stays in Zululand. He starts acting as a diplomatic interpreter for the king. And... He now starts becoming basically a, a white Zulu. Yeah. He starts taking Zulu wives. The Zulu king is, is rewarding him. He gets land. And 1857, he's a, he's a big landowner in, in Zululand. And he was a clever guy because he managed to trade with the Portuguese in Lorenzo Marx, what is now Maputo. He managed to smuggle firearms to the Zulus as well from the Portuguese. And, okay. you know, so he, he's now this middleman. In, in, this, in this whole thing. Yeah. And because he's white, um, Theophilus Shepstone appoints Dunn as protector of immigrants for Zululand in 1874. Okay. So Shepstone was one of the architects of the Anglo-Zulu War as well. Shepstone was one of these real imperialists who believed everybody should be British. Yeah. And the fact that there was the Zulu kingdom just north of the, the Tugela River really, really irritated this guy. <laughs> and Shepston, if you go into the history books, actually manufactured the Anglo-Zulu War without knowledge of, of London. He oh. thought it would be a done. He, he thought he would just deliver um, the Zulu Kingdom on a plate to the to the British Foreign Office. Yeah. But then he had to please explain Isan Juana and that and that, that massive disaster. So <laughs> yeah. he was he he was a bit of a shady character, and he certainly was one of those sort of career diplomats who decided to do stuff without official sanction. Yeah. But Shepston sounds like a real Hitler. Yeah. So Shepston's <laughs> now. Got old John Dunn 
into the picture as well. And so now, okay, eventually Tetsuayu is is king, Minister of Foreign Affairs. Basically, Minister of Foreign Affairs is this John Dunn character. And the Anglo-Zulu war breaks out. Now, John Dunn lives in Zululand, but the British are saying to him, listen, you've got to cut ties with Tetsuayu and you've got to move over to the British side. Yeah. So Dunn looks at this and... He wanted to remain neutral. I mean, he had buddies on both sides, so he didn't really yeah. know, know what to do. And eventually, he actually becomes part of Lord Chelmsford's column. He does some reconnaissance work. He was actually part of the Battle of Ginginklou. He was part of the Battle of the Relief of Ishawi. And the British policy after, that, after conquering Zululand and capturing Taitswayu, breaking yeah. the army, capturing Taitswayu, was basically divide up Zululand into 13 different pieces, chieftainships, yeah. I don't know, wards, <laughs> I don't know, give them a name. <laughs> and they subdivided Zululand under the governorship of someone imposed on the Zulus by the British. And Dunn yeah. gets one of these, these spots. It just happens to be the biggest one. Yeah. Eventually, Taetuayu comes back to Zululand in 1883, Basically, to rule as a vassal king, they, they, the British half reinstated him. Yeah. Because they realized that the Zulus needed the king back. They're not going to rule if the king is in exile. Yeah. I mean, if you look at pictures of Tatswayu, there's pictures of him in the Cape Town Castle. Oh, yeah. Sitting, sitting on the ramparts of Cape Town Castle, and then eventually goes and he actually visited Victoria and England. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, so Dunn then loses his land. The land is now included in what they call the Native Reserve under the control of a character by Sir Garnet Wolseley. Yeah. But Dunn is married to a daughter of a white settler, a lady by the name of Catherine Pierce, but he had another 48 Zulu wives. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and this, this is where the story gets even... Almost even. one for each week for <laughs> the year. Goodness gracious. There me. we go. And I mean, his <laughs> wives come from 23 different Zulu clans. Yo. And I don't know if you've ever touched on this before, but in, in Swaziland, the, the Swazi king does the same thing. He marries ladies out of all the different clans to make it one family. Yeah, you know, so there's there's a political element to this. I'm not sure how political this one was with his with his with his other with his with his 48 wives. Yeah, but he had 171 children. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, you know, that that part of Zululand, there's a lot of little duns running around. Oh yeah, and he had homes and homesteads all over the place, and yeah, I mean the the story just reads on and on and on and on and on. Eventually, he dies in 1895 at, about, at the age of 60. 23 wives survived him. And a lot of his descendants were settled on a reserve there near the Tugela River. And his story actually carries on right up until um, the, in the mid-1970s. Mid oh, wow. Because okay. the, the Dunn family sat and looked at the title deeds and brought cases to court and got land back on a given land and counterclaims while the other Zulu oh, clans yeah. were made, etc. And eventually, the, the story only sort of eventually gets settled in um, 1974. Sure. One of his great-grandsons eventually took the whole lot to court and the court ruled in, in their in favor. favor. Okay. And um, 
about a thousand of his descendants to this day are still resident on what we call the the Dun the, the Dun farms. Okay. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> that so is awesome. Real larger than life. You know, yeah. I sort of dotted the the podcast with these characters <laughs> that come out of these out of these stories. Yeah. And yeah. There's just some 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 really really huge huge characters. I mean, that's a life well lived. Yeah, <laughs> just he, well. he took life by the horns and shook it. <laughs> <laughs> I think let's go listen to some music quickly, and then we'll be back. Go. Cool. Forty eight wives. Good. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took, but I do know that I love you. And we are back here on Radio Eco Health with a road trip show. And Diedrich, over to you again. Yeah, so a lot of that Zulu history plays out now, up way, way up inland. And now we're still on the on the N2. Interesting little spot you go past just next to Umtunzini. Uh, is what they call the Raffia Palm Monument. Really, really weird one. And it's a grove of Raffia Palms. Okay. It was planted. It's an artificial grove. Um, they think the palm, the, the initial seeds and stuff, were, were taken some, somewhere in the region from, from Cozy Bay or sort of Mozambique there. Okay. And they were planted already early 1900s, 1916, by the local magistrate. And But what makes them interesting is that it's one of the few places where you can get to see a bird um, called the palm nut vulture. Oh, So okay. bird lovers and bird, bird enthusiasts flock down to, ha-ha, flock down to the Raffia Palm <laughs> Monument <laughs> to go hunt for the palm vulture. Very, very weird bird. It only eats the seeds of, of, of palm trees. Okay. But uh, that's an interesting little spot there in Tanzini. Then, then you start now. You're getting up to Mpanganis in that in that part of the world. You've got uh, Richards Bay, massive harbour in Richards Bay. Oh yeah. Um, Mpanganis got a little art, art and cultural history museum, also dating back to the early 1900s. Matuba Tuba, Matuba Twice is what the locals call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Matuba Twice. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Again, very centred on the forestry and on the sugarcane. <clears throat> In that area, because now in northern Zululand, you're starting with the forestry plantations, pine trees, and uh, eucalyptus trees all over the place. Yeah. And there is actually a little memorial there to Nkosi, Nkosi Matubatuba. And he was the Nkosi of, of that entire area for well over, what, 47 years odd. Yeah. He ruled over, over that area. But now we're hitting, again, not quite on the N2, but as you go past Matuba twice, <laughs> and you're heading up the road to Lhlui. Now, my American clients cannot, cannot, in 20 years, I have not managed to get them to pronounce Lhlui. They cannot pronounce Lhlui. Little <laughs> drops of spit come out, and they, 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 they just can't do it. And uh, the, the guy who owns the, the, the big business that I deal with there, um, he calls it Louis Louis. <laughs> he just cannot get the Lhlui. <laughs> Or they call it Huey Huey. They just they just given up. Yeah. <laughs> but you're now starting to see signs to the Kluwe on Fulosi game reserve. Oh yes. And yeah. an interesting part about that one, it's the oldest proclaimed game reserve in Africa. Okay. 
and it was at one stage even the private hunting grounds of King Shaka. Shaka used it to hunt elephant and other big game, okay. and some of the hunting pits that he that he made to trap game are still you can still see them see them today. Yeah. And of course, uh, the Schlitlui Game Reserve made famous for the preservation of the square-lipped or the white rhino. Oh yes, they yeah. were on the verge of extinction, and the then Natal Parks Board started a massive. Um, conservation program capturing rhinos and some of those early documentaries are amazing black and black and white footage of um, oh, Ian yeah. Player and his guys in old beat up Land Rovers barreling through the bush and crashing into termite mounds and uh, absolute <laughs> chaos and mayhem perfecting the capture of rhinos to start yeah. the captive breeding programs and to my knowledge the square-lipped or the white rhino is one of the only big mammals ever to have been taken off the endangered species list. I think it's headed back yeah. that way now with all the poaching that's going on yeah. for rhino horn. But in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, it was taken off that endangered species list because they'd managed yes. to successfully relocate them all over the place. Kruger, you know, Pilansburg, all these places had massive populations of, of white rhino due yeah. to the efforts of the then Natal Parks Board from the Kluklubium Falozi Park. Again, fantastic <laughs> place to visit. Um, as you now carry on up the road, though, uh, we, we're talking more now a bit about history and bits and pieces like that. But you go past Mkuzi. Mkuzi, also a gateway to the Mkuzi Game Reserve up, up that part of the world. Again, some of those, those Natal parks are great. Yeah. Um, but you go past Mkuzi, and there's a little spot there called Ghost Mountain. Oh, yeah. And there's several stories about Ghost Mountain and a lot of legends go about there and apparently sometimes the locals still see little fires and lights and things shining on the top of the mountain oh okay and it is possibly that it is still the burial place of one of the Zulu clans who had to flee into Mozambique many many years ago to escape the rule of Shaka and who still come back and bury their leaders' royalty in this mountain. I don't know how true that one is. It's one of the legends. Yeah. But what it is more famous for is an event that um, happened in 1884. So now we are talking post-Anglo-Zulu War. Anglo-Zulu War, 1879. We're now in 1884. Okay. So... There was a Zulu civil war from 1883 to 1884. And that's why he dies. His son, Dini Zulu, becomes king of the Zulus. And another claimant, a guy by the name of Zibebu, made claim to the throne. Okay. And a massive battle occurred on the flatlands just in front of what is now called Ghost Mountain. Okay. Again, thousands of thousands of Zulus um, were killed, and Dini Zulu won the battle, preserved his claim to the throne, and uh, and Zibebu ran away, managed to escape, climbing the mountains, and disappeared. And Zibebu eventually, 1884, with his um, remnants of his tribe called the Mantlakazi, about six thousand men. Yeah, go into a special reserve for Zulus and Zulus who were not loyal 
to the Zulu king. Yeah. So even though the Zulus have this this, this, this royal house and this this sort of this massive loyalty Zulu nation thing, yeah. Even then, you can still see their splits and factions of those loyal to the king. It's and some of it is even yeah. playing out today. Yeah. There's still a battle going on at the moment about uh, the the succession to the throne as we speak, and there's court cases and uh, the, the the queen mother died or was poisoned or something and oh, yeah. so all of that even even <laughs> to this day this is current news it's as we go on. on so you know king of the zulus it's a, it's a it's a powerful position in south africa you you're king of the biggest tribal grouping in the country huge yeah. political power huge money land ownership etc so you know yeah. you, you're going you're going to wind up with fights and with bits and <laughs> with, 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 <laughs> with with all sorts of intrigues yeah Going on there. Then you go up past the Pongola Port Dam. That was a dam built to irrigate the sugarcane farms and stuff. And especially on the northern side, you're just hitting what's called the Lobombo Mountains. Now, the Lobombos come down from Mozambique and form the border between Mozambique and Eswatini and just hit northern Zululand there as you're driving through into sort of Makuzi, and by the time in Tlitlui, there's no more mountains. So you've got the tail end of those mountains. And the Pongolapur Dam was built there to help irrigate the, the farms in that area. However, what, what did happen with it is it blocked the natural flow of the river and blocked the silt um, oh, that yeah. used to flow through there and flow through onto the northern plains. Okay. So the northern plains is... What used to be homeland is now um, just just farmland, but has become very impoverished because those nutrients no longer flow out onto those yeah. old floodplains. Yeah, and the Pongola Port Dam apparently is silting up quite badly because now obviously all that silt and stuff doesn't run anywhere; it's, yeah. it's piling up in the dam. So there's a bit of controversy on the Pongola Port Dam. However, at the moment, it's a great spot to go. It's one of the few spots in South Africa where you can actually um, do some tiger fishing but the interesting spot just on the other side of the dam is you actually got the King Dingan Memorial now, I don't know if you remember old King Dingan uh, yeah. King, King <coughs> Dingan Kasenza Gakona he was the chappie who took over from Shaka he was one of the two that killed Shaka yeah. and Shaka's half brother Hence, Ken Sagakakona, Senzagakona, both sons of... Because Shaka was also Shaka Ka Senzagakona. Okay, yeah. So, shared the same father, different mother, so half-brother to Shaka. But he was one of the two brothers or half-brothers that killed Shaka. And he took over as king of the Zulus and was king of the Zulus at the time of the arrival of the Fortrekkers. Yes. And Dingan orchestrated the killing of Pitrutif. And badly planned move, the retribution of the foot trackers ended at the Battle of Blood River, which we covered very previously in one of the other podcasts. Yeah. That broke Dingan's power and he had to flee and he fled northwards. And the Swazis actually killed Dingan. Okay. And that still is one of the little tension spots between the Swazis and the Zulus. And the Zulus are saying, well, you guys killed one of our kings. 
Yeah. And that, that's, that, that's a huge crime. And yeah. there's a memorial to King Shaka, theoretically, on the spot where he was killed by the, by the Swazis, just on the northern banks of the Pongolaput Dam okay. in the Labombas. <laughs> then the, the highway carries on up through a couple of little towns, Pongola, and you're sort of heading up now to um, a little town called Pitrutif. Oh. And it's actually quite interesting because there's a, there's, there's a little, <coughs> a little <coughs> couple of kilometers of the highway where you're actually driving the borderline. And it's a little three-strand barbed wire fence. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, people could, cattle rustlers and people, I mean, crossing into Swaziland is not, not, a, no, not, not a big challenge to get in and out of that country. And yeah. if I've got time at the end of the show, I'll see if I can time it. I'll tell you a great story of a bus breakdown we had once okay. in, in Swaziland. But then you get to Petrotif. And again, here we again we meet um, Gerard Murdijk. Oh yes, our, yes. our fantastic uh, the architect. The Dutch Reformed Church in Petrotif is worth stopping at just to go and have a look. It's another Gerard Murdijk construction or design. Yeah. Cape Dutch gables, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, beautiful church. And the Fortrekker mon monument. And no, there's not one there. But the next town, oh, yeah. the next town is called Petrotif. And yes. of course, there's a monument to Peter Tief in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, um, yeah, the story of Peter Tief, you know, he was the last one to get killed, etc. So, but again, we've covered that one at length in that, in that one podcast. Yeah. I like to think that's one of my better stories <clears throat> when I told the Battle of Blood River story. Yeah. One of my mates actually phoned me and said, wow, I've never been to Blood River, but your story there, I want to go visit it now. I said, well, that's exactly what this podcast <laughs> is supposed to be doing. But in Petrotif, there's a 1988 Great Trek Commemoration Monument, not a 1938 to 1988 one. Okay. And again, to me, that always just illustrates that there's well, this little group and that little group and this little group that wants to do something and this little guy wants to do something. And, you know, yeah. and there's never some kind of concerted effort that that seems to come out. But yeah, but I mean, after, after Petrotif, literally the next the next town on 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 the route is Ermelo, and Ermelo is the end of the end of the of the N2 or the start, depending on which way you're driving it. Yeah. But it also, I mean, you got the N11 that meets you there, the N17 that carries on in there, so it's an interesting little town with all of those. But you can cover Ermelo when we do one of the other national routes. I think we'll cover the national routes one by one. Seems, yeah. seems to be a nice, nice way to introduce the various bits and pieces of history and tie, try and tie it all together. Yeah. But I've got to tell you the story. One of the very, very early days of my American operator coming out, one of his bigger groups, I had three coaches. I think I had 112 people in that group. Wow. So I organized three coaches, bus drivers, coach company that will, that will remain unnamed, drivers that I will not name either because they could get yeah. into trouble. But... Uh, we, we get into, into Eswatini, we're staying at one of the nicer hotels in, in the Ezzawini Valley, and one of the buses has now thrown one of its fan belts. Oh. <laughs> and it's now late afternoon, and all the rest of it now, the, the, the coach drivers, I love 99% I love of the coach drivers that you get on the luxury coaches are fantastic guys. Yeah. They really are. They're in, and they're there, and they're organized, and it's not just some truck driver. These are got professional, yeah. professional tourist coach drivers. Yes. This guy turns around and I'm going, oh, here we go, boys. Tomorrow we've got to get into Kruger and now the bus is broken. And, ah, and then he says, DV, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm going to make a plan. <laughs> See him on the phone. He says, don't listen. You don't want to know. <coughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we go off to dinner. 
I get hold of the the, the owner of the, of the big operator is is on tour. It's one of his first ones in South Africa, so he's coming to check out that it all runs properly. That's why he operates. He does the first two or three years, yeah. then he hands it over to someone else, and he then carries on and puts tours together the rest of the world. Yeah. So this guy, I tell him, I tell him, I said, I said, Tane, listen, coach is broken. We're making a plan. He says, I said, I don't know. The drivers are I'm, okay. He says, cool. Let me just let me know when what happens. I get it. Things break. Yeah. We'll fix it. Anyway, next morning, breakfast, coach drivers is sorted. Okay. I go, okay. Um, how? <laughs> says, you want? I said, I want to know. <laughs> says, well, he happened to know of, or he had a mate that stayed just outside of um, the border. Okay. Who ran a little spare shop. And he got a taxi or a car, organized the drive up to the border post. Oh, yeah. They swung a left. They went down a dirt road for a couple of kilometers. They climbed through the fence. <laughs> they met with their mate, went to the workshop, got the fan belt. <laughs> and they <laughs> came back, crawled under the fence, <laughs> got back to the coach, fixed the coach at two in the morning, and presented a fully functional coach to us the next day. So... <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez, okay. <laughs> so technically illegal, I think, but yeah. uh, no, no harm was meant by anyone. Yeah. But I look at that and I go, you know what? That's the kind of service we need, and that's the kind of guys we need in the tourist industry. Yeah. Who are prepared to go to those lengths to keep the tours going, keep the tourists happy, and yeah. present our country to them properly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and I see our time is up again. It is. Yeah. It is, unfortunately. Always have a lot of fun doing this. Yeah, well, it is a lot of fun. And uh, thanks for coming in again. And uh, I like the bus story. It's awesome. <laughs> it is a cool bus story. It is a very, very cool bus story. So we'll have to think about what to do next week. But uh, I'm sure we'll come up with something interesting again. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we'll carry on with something else there. Like you said, with one of the other highways. Can There's on still so much to cover. Yeah. Still got a couple of years of these podcasts going. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Diedrich. Thank you, Deval. Thanks to the listeners. See you again next week, guys. Cheers, guys. <laughs>